Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Today we are going to be talking about worship. That's the subject. That's the essential this morning. And There's a part of me that wants to just get right into it and just uh, go straight to magnifying the goodness of God and the glory of Jesus and putting our attention on him, and we will get there and we will spend a a lot of time this morning doing that. Uh, But before we get there, I was struck this morning, I woke up at 5.30 before my alarm clock, struck with the words of Jesus, not because I'd read them recently, but simply because I remembered them. And Jesus' words come from Matthew 5, 23. He says, if you are giving your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. The translation is we could say that Jesus sequences or prioritizes reconciliation between brothers over even worship of God. Not because it's more important, but because we can't do the latter without doing the former. As most of our nation knows by this time, earlier this week, a man named George Floyd was killed by police in police custody. And tragically, it's not the first time that that has happened. And understandably, there is an anger that is welling up from within members of the black community all over our nation who are crying out for justice. And while we may disagree with some of the actions that we're seeing, I have to say that Apathy is no better a response to these things than anger. And the truth is that our nation has a long history of racism, from slavery to segregation to mass incarceration, which exists even today. And people are wounded and people are hurting. And I want to say a word to those who have skin color like mine. We have to acknowledge this problem and we have to actively work toward solutions. It's not okay anymore and it never was to say we just don't know what to do. Friends, we need to be part of the process of reconciliation. In fact, I think based on Jesus' words, if we're not willing to do the work of reconciliation, then we might as well not even worship. And so with that, I wanna pray. I wanna pray for what we just sang about, that God would bring revival, healing, and an awakening to our nation by the power of Jesus. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, it feels so powerless to acknowledge these things that feel so beyond our control, things that have a long history and things that uh, boil down to the fact, God, that we are broken people, sinners, who each have turned our own way, turned away from the glory of God, away from the grace of Jesus to seek our own path. God, we need revival. It needs to begin in our hearts. It needs to boil out over into reconciliation among each other. It needs to ultimately change even certain laws and things that are systemic that have not been challenged for too long. And God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. But you told us to pray, Jesus, that we would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you bring your will to bear? Would you bring justice to bear in our world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 29, verse 2 is where we're going to begin this morning. Psalm 29, 2, David writes these words, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. 
So we're going to begin today with a question. How do I ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name? Or maybe more simply, how do I worship God? And I want to begin, and this might feel a little academic, but I think it's important as we get there. In the Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew has 10 words that get translated into English as worship. These 10 words appear 111 times. And of those 111 times, 81 of those, I'm sorry, 74 of those are the word that means to bow down on our face. So so that's the Hebrew word primarily that gets translated as worship. It's the idea of physically bowing down before God. The Greek, which the New Testament is written in, has 13 words that get translated as worship. And that 81 number I said a second ago, that 81 number is the number of times that the most common word in Greek is used, proskuneo. Proskuneo is the Greek word for worship. You might hear it even in that word like prostrate, laying down face first before God. It's the same concept, Hebrew and Greek. And what we can draw out of that is that worship is primarily an acknowledgement of my subordination or of my submission to God. Several years ago, a popular song came out called I Can Only Imagine. It's a beautiful and incredible song, but it gets us thinking about what it will be like when we see God in person, what it will be like when we stand before him. And it asks the question, will I stand in your presence? Will I fall to my knees? And so on. And here's what I believe. If we look at scripture, the automatic response that people had when they encountered God was they fell face down. They bowed down in worship to God. And so I believe that when we see God, what's going to happen is that his glory is going to knock us on our face and then his grace is going to lift us up to our feet. And both aspects of that character of God, his glory and his grace, are things that should elicit within us worship of God. But that's when we see him. How do we live a life of worship in the meantime? I want to give you four avenues by which we worship God. The first is this. Worship begins with our thoughts. 20th century theologian A.W. Tozer said this in his book, The Pursuit of God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Which means the most important thing about you is not what's in your bank account, It's not what church you go to. Uh, It's not the size of your family. It's not what you prefer to eat or the kind of music you listen to. The most important thing about you is what enters your mind when you think about God. How do you envision him? What do you see when your mind's eye looks to him? Earlier this week, my six-year-old initiated a conversation with me that led to her saying, Dad, I hope God looks differently than I picture him because I picture him looking kind of creepy. To which I answered, yes, Olivia, God looks differently than you picture him. Do you know that? Have you realized that yet? See, because I think one of the greatest dangers of our time and maybe of all time is that we pull God down to our highest ideals of what love and goodness and justice and compassion look like and we say, that is God And in contrast to that, this is what Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9 says. God speaking says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
It's why the appropriate response when we come to God is to bow down. It's to acknowledge that God is someone much greater and higher than we are. The philosopher Voltaire said, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Friends, let us not try to craft a God in our image. Let's let God be God as revealed in his word, and let's worship him in reverence for who he is. Now, the fact that that God's ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are higher than ours, this does not mean God can't be known. This is what the agnostics would tell us, or the atheists. They would say, well, God is unknowable if he even exists at all. I love the illustration that C.S. Lewis gave us of the blind men feeling around and touching an elephant. And one man says, well, this feels like a, a rope because he's got the tail. And one man says, no, 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 it's, it's hard and, and, and sturdy and he's feeling the tusk. And one man says, no, it's, it's kind of round and, 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 and flabby and, and he's feeling the belly. And all of them are describing what's true, but none of them have the full picture. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now friends, we can know God because God has revealed himself in his word, but it's not just about having right theology about God. That's where it begins, I believe. Because if you don't know God, how can you worship someone you don't know? But it's not just right theology, it's also right thoughts. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, friends, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's excellent or praiseworthy, lovely or admirable, think about these things. And the truth is, there are some people that have really good theology about God, but really bad thoughts about themselves or other people or their world. And you cannot worship God, though your theology may be orthodox and straight, if your thoughts are corrupted by selfish interest. Let me give you an application. I'm actually going to do this for each of the four points we talk about. A friend of mine, Simon, practiced, I don't know if he still does this, but he shared this with me years ago, that before he would let his feet hit the floor in the morning, he would recite five things that he was grateful for things about God and things about what God had done for him. And he just wanted to start his day by acknowledgement of God and his thoughts that God was good. That is where worship begins. I want to challenge you this week. Would you, maybe it's two or three or five, but would you commit to before your feet hit the floor in the morning that you give God glory for his character or for things that he's done on your behalf? Second avenue of worship is this. Worship involves our emotions. I was brought up in a denomination, an expression of the evangelical church, whose motto was the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Now, let me tell you, I hold a very, very high view of Scripture. I believe it is our source and our authority and the reliable Word of God. But you know, the problem with what I heard in that mantra, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, was this, it doesn't matter what you feel, just what you believe doesn't matter what you feel. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to, if I could extend the idea, you don't have to love God with your heart. You don't have to love people as yourself. You just have to believe the right things that the Bible says, and that's all God requires of you. 
I've come to believe differently than that, that our emotions serve kind of like the dashboard on our car. They indicate to us that something is not right. Now, it doesn't mean we pitch the car. It doesn't mean we turn and go a different direction. But there is a point at which we may need to stop and say that the dashboard of my emotions is telling me that I'm overheating or I'm running out of gas or I've got a flat tire. Something isn't right. Something is eventually going to pull me down. And I need to bring my emotions to where my thoughts and my beliefs are. Emotions matter. David thought that they mattered. When he wrote in Psalm chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, he said, Lord, you would not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Not only David, but Jesus said something similar. I already quoted it, Matthew 22, verse 37, saying to the teacher of the law, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You could underline or circle that. And with all your soul, again, we're in the place of emotions, and with all all your mind. So worship begins with our thoughts, but it also involves our emotions. The, The point, I think, is this. God has been trying to communicate to us that he's not a God of ritual. He's a God of relationship. And in the same way that you wouldn't want your spouse just dutifully doing things for you so that he or she can check the box and say, look, I've been a good spouse, you'd want it to come from a deeper place in their heart. There's a uh, catechism. Most of us didn't grow up on catechisms, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. It asks this question, what is the chief end of man? The answer being to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see that word there, enjoy God. That is a part, an important part of our faith. John Piper, uh, pastor in Minnesota, he says it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you satisfied in God this morning? Do you look forward to time with him? When you encounter God, when you experience God, does it move your heart or are you just checking the box? Are you just doing the rituals? That same pastor, John Piper, tells this to illustrate the point. I'm actually going to read what he wrote. He says, suppose I take flowers to my wife, I I ring the doorbell, and she looks at me and I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, they're beautiful. Why did you? And suppose I say, because it's my duty, she would not be happy with that answer. Run the video again. This is what he writes. I ring the doorbell. She looks at the flowers. She says, oh, Johnny, they are beautiful. Why did you? And I say, because I can't help it. I love buying flowers for you. In fact, I've got a plan for the evening and we're going to go out on the town because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend an evening with you. Not in a million years would my wife say, nothing you would rather do than go out with me. That's all you ever think about. You, you, you. And what would satisfy you? She would never say that. Why? Because when I say nothing would make me happier than to be with you tonight, she feels honored, glorified, magnified. The more satisfied in her that I am, the more glorified by me she feels. Therefore, we operate on this principle all day long when we are thinking clearly. I hope this is bringing some things together that might have been disjointed in your mind. God is not sterile. He's not distant. He's not cold. Every other religion that I know of 
maintains that God is someone who's looking for our worship because it it scores us points with him. When we do the rituals, he's pleased with the rituals. Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches that God is pleased with relationship and most glorified in us when we are deeply satisfied in him. Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here's the application I want to give you for your emotions in worship. Would you this week choose one fruit of the Spirit, that's what we call those nine descriptions, fruit of the Spirit, that you would each day focus on and more importantly pray for God to cultivate in your heart. Maybe as you examine yourself, you say, you know, the the place where I'm I'm broken in my worship of God is that I've just not been a very loving person to my spouse or to my kids or my coworkers, and I'm going to focus this week on love. Or or maybe it's it's kindness or or joy or peace, or maybe it's even self-control, but you would say, this is the one I'm going to focus on and bringing my affections and my emotions in line with God so that I can worship him with my whole being. He wants our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength not only parts of us. Number three, worship commands our action. What you may notice is that there's somewhat of a progression, I believe, in the process of worship. Because it begins with our thoughts, it involves our emotions, and then it commands our actions. And I say commands rather than demands on purpose. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Imagine there are two people, we'll call the first person, person number one, I'm feeling real creative this morning. Person number one begins with actions, forcing himself to read his Bible and to pray and to serve because God demands that he do so. Person number two. Person number two begins with thoughts that move her to emotions that joyfully command her soul to read her Bible and to pray and to serve because there's nothing else she desires to do more than to worship God. See, I believe in that scenario, person number one is the person that sees God primarily as a God of judgment and their worship is motivated by nothing more than fear and duty. Person number two, sees God primarily as a God of mercy. And they are motivated by love and tenderness and affection for God. It's the same reason Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul's saying, you've got to get your body involved. You can't keep it in the mind and the emotions. You've got to get your actions in line to worship God, be a living sacrifice. But he says, but do this in view of God's mercy or by the mercies of God. What happens, friends, is when we skip over that part and we go straight to the living sacrifices, we will be tempted to consider ourselves spiritual martyrs for God And we will glorify ourselves for our sacrifice rather than God for his kindness. Listen, our our actions need to be involved in worship, but we do it out of the mercy of God. It's something that should well up within us. When we think about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, when we think about the glory of the redeeming God, we should well up with thoughts and emotions that, that, that then move us to actions of worship. 
And here's the beautiful thing about commanding our actions to worship. Not only can our actions be a form of worship, but they are also a witness to the world. Brennan Manning said it this way, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So are you someone who's worshiping God with parts, your thoughts, your emotions, but you're not doing actions like justice, compassion, and mercy that also point to worship? If so, you're contributing to the problem because people are going to look at you and they're going to see the name Christian and go, well, that's not what I want to become. The Bible teaches something very different. The Bible is filled with stories of men and women who sacrificed who surrendered, who died to themselves, and some even physically died serving the Lord with their bodies and with their lives. And here's the beautiful thing about worship with actions. Our worship is a witness to the world, and our witness brings glory to God. They are mutually beneficial. Oh, I long for the day when the church would just be a church where, where we're worshiping as witness and, and our witness brings glory to God. And the more that we worship, the more our witness improves. And the more that we witness, the more our worship resonates. And we're a church on mission, living lives of worship, not just doing it once a week on a Sunday. Let me apply this for us. It's a question. One who, who is one person you can serve this week by way of intentional encouragement or maybe through manual labor or through a generous gift? You've got to get it out of the theoretical. If you're like me, I tend to be philosophically minded. I got it from my grandfather. I, I have to work to make sure that my actions are doing what my mind believes. So who's one person, one place this, this week that you can infiltrate with the love and the kingdom of God by your actions? Number four. And this is the last one. Worship overflows in our words. Luke chapter 6 and verse 45 says this. Jesus speaking, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Let me illustrate this for you. This Coke can has been sitting... uh, innocently and politely on this table over here while I've been preaching. And this may represent what our lives are like three, four, five days a week. And the kids are behaving and the boss is being relatively good to us and and things are pretty good. We're sleeping at night, all the things, right? But then COVID-19 happens and then things go bad at work or we even get laid off. And then the kids are home around the clock and they're misbehaving and they're, it's getting tough and you know what I'm about to do. And all of a sudden we get shaken up. We'll get somebody to clean that up. Here's the problem. Well, one problem is I'm going to have Coke on my hands for the rest of this sermon, but just ignore that. Here's the problem. The, the Coke was in there the whole time. Shaking it didn't put it there, right? What shaking it did was brought it out. So, so don't go blaming that person that cut you off or the, the kids or the boss. When you respond it with words is what we're talking about now, with words that are crass or that are gossip or that are, are demeaning or that are belligerent or that are angry or whatever it is, guess what? God's showing you what was in there 
all along. He's showing you the fruit that had rotted to go back to our fruit of the spirit analogy. It was in there the whole time. Words are powerful, powerful things. This is why scripture admonishes us to use them carefully and use them wisely. Think for a minute about the power of the word in the Bible. You know that God created the universe through the spoken word. Genesis 1 tells us that God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke it into existence. Jesus himself is called in John chapter 1, the logos, or the word is the word there in Greek, the the word of God. And Proverbs 18.21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So how are you doing with your words? How are you doing with your words? How are you speaking to your spouse? How are you speaking to your children? How are you speaking to your in-laws? How are you speaking to your boss, your employees, your coworkers? It's an evidence of worship. Uh, let, me, let me talk about something that may not come into everybody's minds, but I think on this stuff and it comes to my mind. I want to ask a question and then answer it. Does God need our words? We know scripture commands us to to worship God with our lips, with our tongue, with our words, but does God need that? I mean, my wife needs my words for support and encouragement, and that's understandable. Uh, My kids need my words for comfort and guidance, and we can understand that. Uh, My staff members, my employees also need my words for direction and for approval, but does God need my words? Here's how I would answer that. Worship of God with our words is not filling a need that God has for his ego to be stroked or for his position in our lives to be secured. The the reason that scripture commands us to worship with our words is that it has a way of directing our thoughts to what is true, right? And worship begins with our thoughts. If I say to myself, my life is falling apart and my marriage is broken and my kids are rotten and this is never gonna work, and I have no future, guess what? I'm telling myself things that are not true and that distort the image of God in my mind and that cut off worship at its feet. Conversely, when I tell myself, or rather I tell God things that are true of him, that he is good, that he is gracious and compassionate, that he is just, Dr. King said it, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, When we remind ourselves with words of who God is, it directs our thoughts to what is true. Not wishful thinking, not hopeful thinking, not name it and claim it, but rather speaking the truth of worship of who God is. And suddenly our thoughts, our emotions, and hopefully our actions begin to get in line with it. The tongue is the rudder of our lives. That's what James says. When we ascribe praise to God for his character, his works, it reminds us what was true all along. It can be an anchor for us. So telling God of his goodness can refresh my heart when life simply is not good. Telling God of his mercy can lift my mind from a place of guilt and self-condemnation. Praising God for a great work in my past can remind me that he's a God of miracles and that he can do it again. All of these things can happen as we worship with our words. Here's my hunch. For some of us, the problem isn't worshiping with our words, it's everything else that's coming out of our mouths that isn't worship. That's the problem. We, we, we say so many things that don't build up and don't worship. 
and don't resonate with truth and don't lead people to truth. We just use the words for whatever to, to improve our position or to, to vent or to blow off steam. Could it be that getting a tighter rate on our tongue would help us to use our words for worship even better? And to that end, my application for us around worship with our words is this. Would you sometime this week block off two hours to practice silence, allowing your thoughts and your emotions to be, to, to be directed toward God, but saying nothing? I was one of seven kids. We all had a lot of words to use in a given day, and my mom homeschooled, so you can figure out the dilemma that she faced. And I distinctly remember, I don't remember how old I was, probably 9, 10, or 11. I was the middle child. And there was one day that my mom didn't allow us to say a single word for the entire day. Now, can you imagine that? Seven kids, ages 4 to 18, no one was allowed to speak. And I remember how difficult it was, but I also remember how, how my thoughts began to change as I didn't blow off the steam and I didn't lash out at my brother. And, and it contained me in a way that maybe if we would practice that discipline better, when we go to bring words to the Lord in worship, they're words he can honor and words he can receive. I'm going to close with this. I've been teaching for probably the better part of 30 minutes, and I've said nothing about music or singing. Does that surprise you? We're on worship. I thought it would all be about singing, right? Well, there's two reasons that I haven't. The first is that the Bible spends far more time addressing our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, and our words than it does our singing. Yes, we're commanded to sing, but it seems to be the uh, last part of our worship, not the first. God cares more about the others. And secondly, uh, the reason that I save it for last or just mention it at the end is because our, if our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, and our words aren't glorifying to God, then when we sing songs of worship, we might as well be singing happy birthday. It doesn't matter. Jesus said to the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips or their words, but their hearts are far away from me. Church, I don't want to be a church that's guilty of worshiping through a form we call singing or art or music and then walking out the door and not living lives of worship every day of the week. This is not a call to perfection. I'm a long way from it. This is a call to progress. Would you learn with me? Would we learn together to live lives of worship, lives that we posture ourselves in bowing reverence to God and we point people to the only way that they can be saved, the only way they can have eternal life through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus, the Son of God. I'm going to close with Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. I don't know about you, but I do not want to live my life in vain. And as much as we celebrate singing songs of worship, and as important as that has been throughout church history, throughout redemptive history, all the people of God have always sung. It's important. But Jesus calls it vanity. He calls it hypocrisy. If it isn't matched with a commitment to justice, to love, to right thinking and feeling and acting toward our neighbors. Would you join me in prayer?
Lord, I know it's probably not the smartest thing to do to take time to be silent when people are watching via stream. I know we get distracted and and we get on to other things. But God, I don't want to be hasty. I don't want to rush into your presence. I want your presence to rush into me, God. I want your presence to rush into this church, into your people in America and throughout the world. I want you to change us. I want you to make us people that can worship you from sincere hearts. God, I want to help and be part of the solution. I want to be part of preparing us to be that people of Revelation chapter 7 who are bowing with their faces before the throne of Jesus from every tongue and tribe and nation and language and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. God of revival, would you awaken us? Would you awaken the city? Would you awaken our nation? And may we worship you while we can't see your face in such a way that when we see your face, we'll have done it not in vain, but to the glory of the Son and to the praise of the Father, in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.